Welcome to the Final Ghost Podcast, where we'd like to think we wouldn't succumb to teen-on-teen cannibalism if stuck in a remote forest, but we can never really be sure. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Ghost Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. On this podcast, we take a trope from horror history and explore it via in-depth discussions about the movies and TV shows that best represent it. We've now made it to the final episode of this teen horror season. We'll have a wrap-up bonus episode next week, but we will not be covering any more teen horror for the foreseeable. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UK. If you've enjoyed this season, please do leave the podcast a review on Apple or Spotify podcasts. I need the validation. Also, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the final girls. There's a new mini series about the films of the new Fanchuk Shamini dropping next week, inspired by a project I did a few months ago, and a new in-depth review of Jordan Peele's Nope forthcoming. And excitingly, we've also got our first live show happening at the London Podcast Festival. On the 8th of September at 7pm, we will be doing a special live show going over the career of the OG final girl, the one and only Jamie Lee Curtis, just in time for her final outing as Laurie Strode in Halloween Ends. Tickets are on sale now. I'll leave the link for those in the show notes. And hopefully we'll see you there for chats, clips, and some hardcore Jamie Lee standing. Go back to the show at hand. There could be no better way to wrap up a mammoth 40-episode season about teen horror than with a mammoth, almost two-hour-long episode about the hit series Yellow Jackets, which combines some of my favorite things. Mean Girls... Wilderness survival stories, creepy cults, bears, and Christina Ricci. Joining me in this episode is the formidable and hilarious Jordan Cruciola, the number one online cheerleader for Yellow Jackets. As usual, and very importantly for this episode in particular, we spoil everything from the first season of Yellow Jackets pretty much from the beginning. Go watch it, it's an incredible show, and then come back and listen to this episode. I've had so many requests about covering the show, so with all of that said, I do hope you enjoy our take on the first season of Yellow Jackets. Are you ready, Jordan? Shall we kick off? We um, warmed ourselves up with a little Lee Pace, does he fuck or does he not fuck conversation? There is only one correct answer, as we've established. Yep. Um, yep. I do kind of want to know where your raging, fiery passion for Lee Pace comes from. Dare I ask? He's just, he's just so. It's a I, lot. You know, you know what the, I've always found him very, very handsome. Like, it just, he's so handsome. He's dashing. So he dashing. should be a leading man. Um, Why is he not a leading man? Yes. He should be. He, and and I, I think they're like, I have this strong sense of mm. advocacy for him in that way. Like, I think I'm. I, like, compensate with a passion for Lee Pace because I'm, in the way that, like, Angelica Jade Heat Bastien is about, like, James mm-hmm. Marsden. Like, what the fuck, guys? How did we drop the ball on James Marsden? She's completely right. And I feel a similar thing about Lee Pace. Like, how have we just let this go? And it was, the to me, maybe up there with the hottest Lee Pace roles. Um, 
I want to get his name right. I want to get his name, the character's name right. Oh, come to me. Don't, I don't want to search it. I'm going to search it. Uh, mm, I don't, damn it. I'm going to need to look it up. Uh, okay. I found it. Lee Pace as Ronan the Accuser. Oh my god, yes! In Guardians of the Galaxy? In Guardians of the Galaxy, purple, swole, in that whole, like, ritual sequence where they're, like, pouring liquid on him and, like, throwing powder at him, I was like, this is erotic for the MCU. (laughs) An erotic thriller with Lee Pace? This has got past the censors of the mouse house. Is this like Lee Pace being outfitted with things. I was not expecting to do oh, this. Yeah. Lee Pace erotic oh, fuck thriller. Yes. Absolutely. Whoa. But also He's got the Oh, he really it. does and it has not been unleashed yet. Really it has does. not been unleashed. <laughs> do you know what? The, this is this is, is this where the campaign intensity. starts for the maligned beautiful men of the early noughties? <laughs> because I'm going um, to to I'm James Marsden, I'm going to add Lee Pace mm-hmm. and I'm also going to add Matt yeah. Bomer. Who is too beautiful and has been done dirty by the entire industry? All three of those men need an. They need to be. They need to be part of our erotic thriller oh. renaissance that the the people are screaming Honestly. for. That the people are demanding. I am once again and now disrespectfully requesting Ryan Murphy to message me because I have so many ideas, and all of them involve beautiful <laughs> men. All of them involve beautiful men in erotic thrillers and Lady Gaga. <laughs> These are all things he likes. And- yeah. Oh God. Yeah. That's a real checklist. And and really, you know, beautiful, beautiful men. Uh, really not part of. Really not in any way part of the conversation. They're not. And the meat of the conversation today, <laughs> which just makes it a hilarious, a hilarious. Uh, I point. appreciate your segueing into the actual point of this podcast. Uh, on my podcast. Thank you, Jordan. i appreciate this a lot as i do you and your time and your brain (laughs) um we are finally here to talk about yellow jackets which has probably been the most requested episode like i've gotten so many requests to do yellow jackets oh great good good job blood high and i've been putting it off i mean i knew it was going to be with you at some point thank you I am, I think I am the patient zero stand. You really show. are. You really, really are. I know like, about the show because of your yelling on Twitter about this show. I, like, and I don't, I don't, I don't, I won't claim something that I, I truly don't think, but like, I am Ameri- arguably America's foremost scholar of gender yes, body, claimed, and I am yellow jacket stan, like, pound sign number one. <laughs> Like, I was, I was hyping up the fucking billboard for this show before there was a trailer that it, that sat a few blocks from my house. Like, I would pass by it and multiple times I took photos of it and was like, who's fucking hyped for Yellow Jackets and posted about it on Twitter. I am the original fan of Yellow Jackets outside of the inner circle of people involved in So me. tell me then, when did this start? How did you learn of the show's existence? When did you first watch it? How did your love intensify as the show progressed? Uh, <laughs> it was a straight up linear <laughs> progression with an, with an exponential explosion. Um, I, I'm sure I had like internalized some press release from ages ago where it was like, 
shit, these people are cast in this mm-hmm. show? It's like, Melanie Linsky, Ricci, what's going on? Like, I'm sure that was, I like, tucked away into the mind palace. Um, But it was, like, then I started, like, I started seeing the billboards around. And it, like, just, you know, and I, like, getting an understanding of what the premise was. And then the tra- then I saw the trailer. Mm-hmm. And I was like, are you f- fucking with me? And, like, Phil Hay, uh, a Karin Kusama's collaborator, husband, screenwriter, uh, posted about it on Twitter and was like, Karin did such amazing work on this show, like, directed the pilot. And I was like, Karin Kusama's involved? What? And so that was, that was like a, that was such an intense access point, her specifically, in an immediate marriage with uh teen girls uh emotionally cannibalizing each other possibly literally cannibalizing each other and then like the details of the grown cast in it it suddenly like the moment that it hit me it was like oh this is such an amalgamation of my interests there will be no more anticipated show there could be no more anticipated show there will be no better show like this show will deliver and it will be everything for me and that ended up being true and I ended up hollering so much about it on the internet in the lead up to it coming out that it turns out I have a mutual friend with uh, one of the co-creators, uh, Ashley Lyle, her and her husband, Bart Nickerson, are the co-creators of the show. Uh, I have a mutual friend with her and he told her about my fervent standing and she uh, kindly extended an invite to her home to watch the premiere episode with her and her husband and 50 of their dear friends. And I was the only total stranger in the whole place. <laughs> and I was absolutely the most vocal person. They had to put in two people in two rooms to watch because there were so many people over. I was in the living room delegation. And I was absolutely the most audible watcher in the room. I was sitting the closest to the television on the end of the couch. It was a lovely night. Everybody was wonderful. We had pizza. It was great. And the episode was... I didn't watch because they posted it on YouTube. It was like... You can access the premiere of Yellow Jackets for free on YouTube. I was like, I'm waiting for premiere night. I'm waiting for premiere night. I'm I'm not watching that. I'm not spoiling premiere night for myself. And it was perfect. Did you tell me, did I make this up in my dreams? Did you tell me that you at one point yelled, fuck yes, Melanie Linsky? I, Melanie Linsky did absolutely nothing remarkable on screen. She delivered a line. I, it was a scene where she's in the kitchen of her house. She just did something completely normal. Mm-hmm. And I just said, Melly Linsky, can you fucking anything? <laughs> just shout it Put that it on out. the t-shirt. Because it, it's true. And it was just like, in that moment, it was just like, she's so good at filling the ordinary with so much mm-hmm. life that I was just overwhelmed by it in that moment. And God, hello, Misty, you crazy fucking bitch. Like, that I think that comes in episode two. Just like the the way we meet mm. characters in this show is just so. So before before I move into the characters, because that's what I want to spend the most time yeah. talking about, can you briefly <clears throat> summarize the show for anyone who, for some reason, is listening to this and hasn't seen it or um, hasn't rewatched it in a while since it first aired? Yeah, <laughs> hasn't, hasn't rewatched it in a while. Um, this is Yellow Jackets is the story of a champion high school soccer team in New Jersey. A girls soccer team. I think they've just won the New Jersey like state championship uh with their school and they are going to nationals. The Yellow Jackets are going to nationals. 
And this is in, I believe, it's 1997? 96. It's 1997? 96. It's 1997? Mm-hmm. 96. It's 1996. And they are, uh, we meet them on a day at school. They know they're motherfucking champions. We know they are. Um, there's this, you immediately get that amazing sense of teen girl dynamics and internecine politics while they're setting off for this trip on like a private plane on on, like a little commuter sized jet. I don't know where their final destination is meant to be, but over Canada, over the wilderness of Canada, the plane experiences catastrophic mechanical malfunction. It goes down. It crashes in the middle of nothing and nowhere, and the girls are stranded. And the show also takes place concurrently, 25 years later, uh, with a selection of the women. We don't know if it's all of the women who have made it out, or just some of them, but with a selection of the women who have made it out to tell the tale, who were rescued from the wilderness. And we meet them in their sort of seemingly ordinary, but unquestionably traumatized lives are playing out before us uh but so like when we meet them the effects of what happened in the in the forest are sort of still distant from them but then pretty quickly we find that they are being put on the hot seat by an anonymous person who is digging up pieces of their past and like sending them threatening messages and such reaching out and getting in touch so whatever happened in the woods 25 years ago is coming to bite them in the ass again in the present day timeline with our incredible present day ensemble cast. Um, and so we cut back and forth between those two timelines, wondering in anticipation to find out what exactly did happen in those woods. As we wonder what exactly is happening to these women right now, who knows about it? Who's still out there? Who's still alive? And who knows what secrets they're hiding? Goddamn. <laughs> how was that it felt like you were narrating the trailer like in the best possible way <laughs> so let's get into the characters um who are our main characters and the way that they're introduced because we mainly meet them when they're y- when they're older first and then we meet their teenage mm-hmm. counterparts so who are the mm-hmm, main mm-hmm. the main women in the story yes our key ensemble is four women it is Shauna Shipman, uh, played by Melanie Linsky in Adult Land. It is Thaisa, played by Tawny Cypress. It is Natalie, played by Juliette Lewis. And it is Misty, Misty, <laughs> played by Christina Ricci. Those are our, that's our core four in the now. And Thaisa is, she's running, it's, it's, it's state, state senate, senate or proper like national, yeah. She's running for state senate in New Jersey. Uh, Shauna is a completely disillusioned housewife uh, with a whole future that could have been and is now existing in suburban suburban malaise. We meet her, I believe, masturbating to a photo of her teen daughter's boyfriend while laying on her teen daughter's bed. And, you know, not a great financial situation. High school sweetheart, married to him, but that's a complex situation. Uh, Natalie has been in and out of rehabs, it seems like, her entire adult life. She seems to most forwardly wear the scars of the, of what happened in the wilderness is a, is a catastrophe of a person. And then Misty, Misty, we meet her only at the end of the episode. And I originally thought she was a different character. 
Um, but we meet Misty at the end of the episode, and she is working as like a health aide. She's a nurse. Yeah, she's a hospice and nurse. What we learn quickly. Yeah, yeah. And what we learn is a is a is a senior care facility, and she is wearing this painted on pleasant grin. And the scene she is in with this elder patient uh, quickly devolves into menace and terror when she starts threatening <laughs> to hurt this patient if they don't comply with exactly what she wants them to do. And she does so in the most, like, courteous and sort of genteel manner. And we are immediately aware of whoever it is we just met with this name tag that says Misty uh, is a complete fucking crazy person. And I think that is, like, how the episode ends and so like one of the last things we see perhaps is just christina ricci being a terrifyingly pleasant looking very curly haired uh nurse and then we're like what what the fuck is gonna happen next because <laughs> like at this point too like in the trailer you see the trailer and you're like we were promised cannibalism like the the whole fervor around the show in the lead up is like it's gonna be teen girls eating each other in the woods and the like the first thing you see when the pilot opens is a girl in the past timeline in the 90s timeline winter has come and we see one girl running terrified through the forest barefoot bleeding screaming and running for her life and being we hear like whoops and hollers coming after her in the distance like she's being antagonized by some human perhaps animal force we can't see and then we see her fall into a pit of spikes uh, to her death. Then we see a bunch of presumably girls like her, but obscured by masks and like thick clothing and like sheltering clothing, uh, a mass around the grave. And then over the course of the episode, we see that body hung, cut and bled. And we see uh, teeth. We see uh, girls organized around a campfire wearing a ceremonial garb and we see just um sort of implied references to maybe they ate her uh eating meat that's been cooked over a fire gnashing at it with their teeth close-ups on their mouths dirty nails like these girls are in bad fucking shape and so yeah we get teased at early on that something something very gnarly and malicious started happening in the forest and and we know the plane crash but those are like the only two things we know about the forest so we're like wait a minute how did we get from teen girl soccer players going to a championship to state of nature lord of the fly shit happening in the winter and then they don't they don't tell you i get but they sure don't tell you. i have another thing about the lords of the fly shit in a minute but first i want to ask you kind of what do you think or how would you characterize the tone of the series as a whole and where do you think the karen kusama of it all comes into it because karen kusama is credited as an exec producer but also notably mm -hmm. as you mentioned before directed the pilot episode which uh, for anyone who isn't familiar with is kind of the it's it's a tradition now for it has been for over a decade where a named usually film director yeah. comes in sets the tone for the series you know, like establishes yeah. the visual the visual language, language the and show. also i think kind of especially with yellow jackets the tone mm -hmm. and the atmosphere is as important as the yeah. visual language uh because of, so so yeah what do you think the tone of the show is overall and how does the karen kasama of it all feed into it well i think that and the uh the cinematographer in that first episode is julie kirkwood um 
who I think just did such a gorgeous job. She she works has worked with Karin before. She shot Destroyer. She uh, worked with Oz Perkins on The Black Code's Daughter. Like, this is a woman who is very good with atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And you look at something like Destroyer and who is very good with, like, the shittier, darker side of humanity and sort of lensing that into life. And... I think what you have with Karin, obviously, is you have this filmmaker who has um, a sort of beautiful appreciation for the honesty of relationships between women and the sort of sort of beauty of the female experience and all of its terror and gore and and all of its intimacy and um, you know softness and brutality at once, and we see that in something like Girl Fight, which she broke through with uh, with um, Michelle Rodriguez playing the lead, a Sundance hit back around the turn of the millennium then there is obvious you know eon flux haters are out there it's a fun time just go go kick it with eon flux um that movie not well regarded and then obviously jennifer's body uh not well regarded upon release but entirely reclaimed in the subsequent decade deservedly so uh and this is somebody who takes more this is somebody who was in the 2000s, like in the 21st century, I, I would say is a female filmmaker who was taking more seriously um, intimate female friendship and the intimate details and experiences of being girl in this world in a way that few other featured filmmakers, filmmakers making big mm-hmm. movies, um, were taking so seriously. And so there's like, you watch it, you watch a Jennifer's Body if you're a fan, I feel like it's kind of a feeder system into yellow jackets later on if you were if that movie is a big hit with you i would imagine there's going to be a lot for you to love within yellow jackets and i think like you look at something too like the invitation and karin kusama is very good at making something ordinary seem extraordinarily disturbing and i think we get that very much with misty as a character in totality and i think we get that in melanie linsky's life as shauna where it's just sort of like that discomfort underneath the surface of her sort of boring suburban existence and then you know you get you get the girl you get you get once you finally you know we get so little of them in the first episode but to shoot that cannibalism scene hypothetical cannibalism scene you know perhaps not confirmed but i i like to think they're eating each other when you see them all organized in their pagan ritual garb around that fire to me that is very evocative of the stuff the sort of like dark stylish minimalism but like high impact visuals of something like um the invitation that i think is a very exquisitely rendered movie um it's not a lot of flash but i feel like it's a very immersive experience to be in that house with those rich people on the hills and i feel like that opening atmosphere with you know the antler queen and her minions around the fire i feel like that's a good that's a great kusama moment it's interesting you mentioned two kind of contradictory things about the kusama of it all the fact that on the one Mm -hmm. hand she is in her very i think underappreciated way a master of the uncanny in the sense of like Mm -hmm. an an uncanny type of horror that like it's so much easier for it to devolve into something purely supernatural and then it becomes an Ari Aster mm-hmm. situation. But her, yeah. um, her, especially the invitation, I think almost suffers for being a bit too subtle. And I want to bring in her mm. short film, which is an XX, the, the anthology series, mm. which is a sort of mm-hmm. follow up to Rosemary's baby, which is an ambitious conceit in itself. Um, but it, mm-hmm. it's, was that the segment with Melanie Linsky? No, that's so. A- 
No, that's the one directed by uh, St. Vincent. Ah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but the one that she did, which is the longest piece in XX, and it's a... it's a very grounded, kind of earthy follow-up to Rosemary's Baby, as if, you know, if Rosemary had mm. the kid and kind of ran away with it. And obviously this is the right. spawn of Satan, so it's it's not gonna be great. Uh, no matter where you <laughs> no matter where you raise him, he's still gonna be the spawn of Satan. But there is this subtle uncanniness in everything she directs, and there is always this kind of mm-hmm. teetering on the edge of is it supernatural? Is it a is it, an, is it not? Is it weird or mm-hmm. is it just people being real life monsters? And yeah, then there's the really flashy bits and the antler queen is kind of that Jennifer's body mm. mouth opening up and eating someone and being <laughs> covered in blood and kind of the the prettiness and especially of teenage girls with very mm-hmm. disturbing, very overtly bloody and gory imagery put together, which it feels very un-Karen Kasama, but when you look at her work, actually, there's always it's always peppered through. But mm-hmm. in the very first episode which she directed, it does feel like it's it's a tease. It's a tease for what's about mm-hmm. to come. Yeah. Does it ever fully materialize? No, not yet. No. Like and when we yeah, and when we say what's to come, we mean like in a future yeah. season. They're not spilling the beans in season one, guys. I'm not like this, you know, if you haven't watched it yet, know that like going in, that question will not be answered for you. Like, and because they've got a fucking plan and that plan lasts for a couple Hmm. of years. And I wanted to ask you something you alluded to before. And when I was reading a little bit about the, um, the show before we started recording, obviously the comparisons with Lord of the Flies are inevitable and it was an inspiration and apparently you know i'm sure you'll know this but for the listeners that the um one of the creators read the uh, press release that there was going to be a gender flipped version of lord of the flies yeah yeah girls and she read the 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 online comments and the comments were like well that's going to be boring what are they going to do collaborate to death um And she was like, well, f- oh, you clearly don't know teenage girls because they're absolutely savage. So <laughs> I wanted to ask you about what do you think about this this setup as a, as a starting point? And, you know, when you mentioned this kind of softness and brutality at the same time of being a teenage girl, mm-hmm. what do you think about this premise of essentially teenage girls brutalizing or cannibalizing, like you said, each other, both emotionally and, and physically? It's everything. In the words of our dear Jesse from the Neon Demon, it's everything. And I, I will say, too, on the Karin note, um, Ashley Lyle is a very big fan of Jennifer's body and wrote, like, a whole passion letter to Karin um, to get her to come onto this project, writing her, you know, and part of part of that letter was, like, a valentine mm-hmm. to Jennifer's body and the, the impact of it and what it meant to her. So the fact of that coming together is like, yes, these are my, these are my people and this is my content. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, there is simply no more satisfying drama for me, uh, in a narrative than teen girls either going at each other or collaborating with one another to like take down some objective, like some villain, like, just give me every shade of like girls and young women figuring out that the world is against them basically and like it's killer be killed and like that like the process of watching 
young women and girls discover that operating within this world is something that will have to be a strategic effort for them. And learning how within the capacities of each of their personalities uniquely, they will decide to confront those challenges, to confront those oppressors, villains, bullies, um, the game of to use or to be used. Like, you know, again, back to Neon Demon, the question of are you food or are you sex? Like, what is your value as a woman in this world? And there's just no more fun conflict to watch than teenage girls being bitches to each other like it is it's it's the it's the meanest thing it's the funniest thing like there is there is almost there's almost no better in in its way like possibly no better horror comedy for me personally than sorority row from 2009 because it's a mean bitch horror movie and the reason i love bodies 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 which is perhaps about to come out or has just come out uh by the time you hear this because it's a mean bitch horror movie and we had a lot of that in the 2000s because it was such a mean and soulless fucking time but like there's something about mean bitch horror when it is done right that it is it is to me just the i think in the the 2000s what equated to being a mean bitch and and the, the way in which like certain parts of that that era don't transcend and they're just sort of frozen in amber these artifacts of time is it was like hey to be a mean bitch you're gonna be fat phobic and racist like that's how we're gonna define it and like that's uninteresting and you watch you watch things you know from that time now it's like god they said that we said that we were all saying that shit and but when you watch it done in a way that actually understands that the most impactful and in cutting and brutal part of how teen girls can eviscerate each other is the wit with which they understand how to cut each other to pieces if necessary that is evil genius on a level that simply no man (laughs) could could ever approach so where do you think this sits because this is gonna be i don't know if i told you this is gonna be the the end uh, one of the very last episodes of the teen horror season that I've been doing for the past like, ah, yes, okay, yes. 70 years, it seems. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> where, how do you think the show uses and deepens our ideas of teenage girls and the, how they relate to each other? Because we see the teen girl versions of the characters mm-hmm. in two very different, mm-hmm. very extreme scenarios. We see them in yeah. as the hot shit athletes in their New Jersey high school and the dynamics mm-hmm. between that. And then we see them in a in a once in a lifetime like survive survival situation. Where mm-hmm. the roles that they have been prescribed and they that they operate within in the high school scenario are completely appended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My dear beloved my dear Jackie. Yes. Um, th- I, <clears throat> I'm a, you know, TV's big these days. Movies, movies have my heart first and foremost. But it's just true with, with more time, you, you get to give people more character. And I, I think what this show, a thing that I, I really love about this show is as it, it is not just a movie, um, or it's not just like a trilogy that we ended up getting a trilogy or something. Getting to live with these characters in each of their age ranges over the long term 
there's a lot of great sensation you can pack into young girl mean bitch horror uh, into an hour and a half, two hour runtime. And you're going to have, you can get a lot of kicks with that. But like to allow for the nuance and the teeny tiny character details within these teen girl archetypes to see the depth and breadth of them. And it's not, it's not just the fun, you know, sort of shock value insults and you know, body blows that they can trade with one another. And it's not just like, let's throw a cheap makeout in here and like, ooh, they're bi-curious kind of thing. Like, it, as Karen did in a Jennifer's body, like, to live with these characters the way we get to and to so honor the specificity of what makes each of them who they are and how they relate to each other as as girls um, is like to watch the evolution of Shauna and Jackie's relationship throughout the course of the first season to watch the de-evolution of it. Like if you've ever been a, a young girl with a, you know, toxic codependency on your best friend, the way the the peaks and valleys of how this relationship plays out should feel very familiar to you in a lot of ways. And in a way that we are not easily given uh, a character to hold on to as a bad guy. Um, even <laughs> Misty at her worst, uh, the sort of the closest identifiable thing to that in the child timeline. Uh, there is still such an eagerness and desperation about her and such an incredible performance being given by Sammy Henratty. I, I think my, my, my greatest irritation with yellow jackets in the the emmy nominations is that sammy hanratty actually didn't get a nomination as well christina ricci is fucking feasting in this role as grown misty but what she does in the backgrounds of frames sammy hanratty is never not performing in this show even when she's in fucking soft focus and it's incredible to watch um and then what we see what we see in the adult timeline it's really cool because the fun thing about high school shows and movies and stuff is like that time capsule of life. Mm-hmm. Like you look at it, you can kind of project your own nostalgia on it in your high school experience and or just be like, wow, kids these days, like they talk crazy. Like it can, there's a novelty to watching teenagers, whether it's like the novelty of projecting your own experience or like guffawing at, at how crazy teens are in the 21st century sort of situation. But like to watch the dynamics carry over into the adult cast and they're so incredibly well cast between the two timelines to see to look at each of them and immediately be able to link them with their antecedents in the earlier timeline is like yeah that would be shauna now like the performance that sophie nalise is giving it makes total sense that melanie linsky is this shauna shipman like to see how taisa is as a like take no shit but like internally insecure leader struggling with like her queerness and assimilation versus being a radical, like, yes, Tawny Cypress is crushing that as adult tie. And, like, the way that we see, like, this teen sort of extroversion and giddiness that comes from young Misty to watch that honed into, like, an icy weapon by adult Misty and Christina Ricci, like, and the, the, the can, the sort of angsty chaos of young Nat going into the fully unleashed adult hurricane chaos of um Juliet Lewis as as Natalie gets older like watching to see be able to see the impact wounds in one show in one season side by side and not feel like it's ever forced i feel like they have done such a deft job at balancing the character specificity and continuity between the two timelines it just makes the show so rich and it's like oh i care about these people even more and even more quickly 
because I care about them. I feel like I've already been caring about them for 25 years because I, I feel like I've experienced the distance between when they were children and when they were adults. And I just got here. We're two episodes in. I want to ask, there's a, there's another question I want to, I want to get to about Shauna and Jackie, but we'll get to it in a second. Mm. I want to ask about this, I, this trauma bond that all the survivors that we have mm. met so far in season one carry between them. So far. And what I'm interested in is because I think that trauma has become a, a kind of popular, a buzzword especially in horror yeah. and crime fiction. Yeah. Um, not like aside from Jamie Lee Curtis's viral trauma um, compilation, I feel like it's a word yeah. and a concept that a lot of people are overusing in their explaining or the motivations of characters or the ultimate mm-hmm. theme of a, especially a horror film that they're flogging. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in Yellow Jackets, it is very much on the surface. It's in the text. It is evident. Yeah. It is also an extreme, an extreme form of trauma of like, oh no, this is like a, a survival situation, which necessarily, yeah, like they watch people fucking die. Yeah, like, this, like, is, like, this is oh no longer being abided by any kind of rule book that they would have been able to have access to. Like, no, this is just like now a live mm. m- movie, like you know, leith, um, urban legend shit. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. what's interesting, it's a word that kind of comes up in the very last episode, if I'm not mistaken, by one of the most irritating mm-hmm. uh, supporting characters, like the girl who got her leg broken, I believe. And then she stayed on. Oh, she didn't yeah. get on the plane, but she felt like she had the shared <laughs> trauma bonding with the survivors. Yeah, she's been she's been dining out on the fact that she was a like yellow jacket JV pull up who didn't make it onto the yeah. plane for like her whole adult life. She's like hanging on to a tragedy that is not her own to get some semblance of attention. Exactly. So based on on kind of on seeing the characters experience the actual traumatic incident that they're experiencing, well, well we're at least part of it. I'm sure we see a lot yeah. more in the next in the forthcoming seasons. And their yeah. adult selves. How do you think this mm-hmm. show actually skirts around some of the more extreme ways in which they've survived their ordeal but also around this concept of of trauma without actually ever i think feeding into this now kind of super mushy and quite uninteresting uh populist horror approach to it i think it i think where this show is really succeeding so far is it really is giving us a show and don't tell we're not getting characters giving us exposition about why they are the way they are. In fact, we have characters avoiding at every fucking cost explaining what happened to them and what made them who they are. We there, we know, we come to learn. There is an entire series of journals that Shauna kept when she was out in the woods and she has she has kept them all this time. She keeps them locked away. <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> has there ever been a man on TV that we have collectively gotten behind on a sharper pivot from being completely op- opposed to him than fucking Jeff. <laughs> My God! The the dopey, handsome, small-town husband who it turns out ally. Jeff's yeah. an ally. Jeff's a partner. We love yeah. Jeff. We stand <laughs> yeah, Jeff. Like, this fucking douche. It's like, I'm like hoping Melanie Linsky literally kills him. 
like has one of her Shauna fits and literally kills him up to the point where I'm like, man no, of the year, husband no, of the year, partner of the I year. Don't, I don't agree, man or husband or anything of the year, but like <laughs> harmless, like kind of, kind of. A, a, oh, a so flop. he's a handsome flop. Like he will flop. There's no bunk. He's a flop. He'll be flopping around. Like he just like he's a good couch buddy. Good for Jeff. <laughs> He is always great. He's gonna try. He's he's gonna try his best, and his best is kind of not great. But bless him. No, but he he is one of the few people who knows as close to everything as a person could know uh, about the. Do you know what he knows enough? Secretly read these. He knows enough to know to shut the fuck up. Yeah, and we respect that. He knows enough, and he he knows enough to know to shut the fuck up, and he has. Un unflappably uh bit like it's not enough to just show up as a husband but when you find out that jeff knows like everything that's happened and he's like shauna i love you it's like well that's a real warts and all moment jeff (laughs) that's like you are unattentive you are uninterested you are uninteresting um but it turns out jeff i mean not to king shame Jeff, but also he is so uninteresting <laughs> that his deepest sexual oh, fantasy God. is to he is have the most sex at work. Man in New Jersey, Jeff. Oh, it's so, it's so, it's so, it's so hard to watch. <laughs> it, it's so, it's so hard to watch. And and you're like, oh, you're right there with Shauna being like, yeah, I'd laugh. At you, yeah. <laughs> embarrassing. Um, Shauna like wants to get like fucking tossed around and like be dominated and and to dominate so good for her um but i i I think this show has done a fantastic job of really slowly meeting out character especially for the adults because we don't know what happened in the subsequent time after the crash really um not most of it but like we are never spoon fed what's going on with taisa what are what's happening to her in the middle of the night why does she have these night terrors what's going on we get little hints of her past we get visuals explaining like okay so this is an this has been around for a long time we're not going to feed it to you all all at once but you're going to know she's been dealing with this her entire life with lottie lottie starts like she her medication runs out and she starts having sort of paranoid considerations about what could be going on i'm not going to say delusions i don't know i don't know if it's real she starts having sort of paranoid um either fantasies or projections about what's going on around them in the woods that is leading her to think that there is a sort of spiritual uh element to what's happening around them and they need to guard themselves in a sort of pagan devotee kind of way to nature and its elements and then we get little flashbacks to, to the baby lottie in the car having premonitions that save her parents from a catastrophic car crash we see nat's horrible home life and the absolutely nightmare terrifying thing that happened to her abusive father that has an instrumental role and in why nat probably has trust and love issues in this world i will say regarding nat i think that i think the for me, it's basically a perfect show, but I think it's one egregious mistake from the first season is making, is having Nat moon over Travis fucking constantly as a child in lieu of basically anything else. And I know it's hard. I know we have to understand. We have to believe why Natalie would be so singularly focused on because, mm-hmm. spoilers, guys, the show opens basically with uh, Travis very early on. We learn he has either killed himself or he has been killed and there is suspicious things afoot. There are suspicious things afoot. So, and she is so desperately obsessed with figuring out what happened to Travis. Travis would never do this. And I know we have to have buy-in into why she would be that devoted mm-hmm. to him. 
but it makes Natalie the sort of, like, the fucking punk rock one of the group, the bad bitch, the, like, bleached hair, like, smoking cigarettes will fuck you up, like, not a care in the world, gets shit on by Jackie for being white trash, and, like, holding her up, like, we, it, it reduces her to chasing a mopey boy around in the woods so much that it's like, are you fucking serious? Like, Natalie, of all people, like, we can't do this crush any other way. Um, that's my only problem. With I'm gonna one. disagree with I'm gonna and disagree with you, Sadia, because no, please, actually please. it makes sense for me. It is a it is a very okay. light uh upending of the of the trope of like the bad bitch with a heart of gold type thing. And the terrible yeah. home life and all the trust and love issues that she has, and also the the collective slut shaming of Natalie by the other yes. girls, both in the high school mm-hmm. and on the fucking in the fucking wilderness like oh you you have to worry about bears but you're gonna spend your time slut shaming this girl who is also in the same situation (laughs) as you basically yeah you're going hungry and you care about that right now yeah you know natalie's out there banging the one other dude who survived who (laughs) is not gay on the i'm I'm saying on the (laughs) island they're not on an island like in the for in the wilderness (laughs) it's like that's that's what they care about it's reputation gay or or like yeah um she they cannot fathom that she would possibly be able to have actual feelings for travis so i think this obsession this mooning over travis is not so much a crush it is this actual pursuit of softness and care that she isn't allowed to and doesn't allow herself because of a the sort of the the really horrific home life that she has but also the Mm -hmm. reputation that she has carved out and lightly either encouraged or not uh contradicted like it 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 favors her to be the bad slutty bitch it favors her up until a point up until a point where she needs something a little bit real and it's so hurtful when travis looks or treats or speaks to her in a way that seems to indicate that he buys into these ideas about her and him actually saying and i think i would have I think I would have an easier time with the, the that dimension of Nat in the young timeline if it, like, he is, like, he is awkwardly, like, pushing away from her, running away from her most of that whole mm-hmm. first season in the young timeline. And I'm like, bitch, how many times are you going to throw good after bad? Like, honest, like, he's, be- he's being a teenage boy. He's being dickish. He's being, like, he's being completely in character for a teenage boy who's overwhelmed and in a crisis situation. But it's like... It's watching herself constantly pine for this person who's, like, even for, like, stupid self-defeating reasons, reject her over and over again that I'm just, like, I'm so tired of watching Natalie get rejected and chase a boy. Like, I'm, like, it'd be one thing if they were just, like, consistently vibing, but, like, we spend, it's pretty much, it's a good amount of time. Um, They're about to pretty much graduate when we meet the yellow jackets so it's end of a school year it's probably late spring early summer and then by the end of the show the end of the last episode we get the first snow so we go through a whole fucking summer and probably into late fall and that means we are get that means natalie has been doing this crying after travis rejecting her thing for probably five months and it's Sounds like legit. how many mother fucking time i mean just but as a as a as a function of what is television it's like i am about fucking spent like i feel like you've given me three seasons of natalie debasing herself for an, a mopey boy in in one seasons of television and like i i cannot wait for season two because a thing we get 
hinted at, cons- like, it gets ever more consistent over the course of the adult mm-hmm. timeline, is, like, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for mm-hmm. Natalie. Natalie saved mm-hmm. us. Like, there's this duty of care. And I think this gets to the trauma question, too. There's this duty of care to Natalie, specifically, intensely, between Tysa and Natalie. To where Tysa pays for her rehab. Um, Natalie seems to have a lot of money, and we don't yet know where that came from. Uh, she has the, she is, we meet her in a posh rehab center. It looks like in Malibu. She comes back to New Jersey and gets a classic Porsche out of a garage that she's been, that she's had kept. Um, and obviously Thais has been paying for her care to a degree, but like there's some sort of money that Natalie came into at a certain point that we don't there's know about. There's also an implied attitude to money that comes from someone who like the, f- the source of the money is sort of infinite. It's so infinite yes, that it yes, loses it meaning. To, yeah. And like, it, and it's in a way that like, she seems to be out of cash now because she's going to Taisa for a lot of it. But like, she's, a, they're into their forties at this point. And Natalie has been, it seems like a mess her whole adult life dealing with addiction issues and mental health issues. So somewhere it has been replenishing a supply of money mm-hmm. to Natalie throughout her life to where she's not just living in a gutter and has like a pretty fucking rad rock star wardrobe that Juliet Lewis is marching around. I mean, first of Um, all, I mean, I'm 100% certain that that is just Juliet Lewis's own wardrobe because it looks exactly like her style. I honestly hope Nat's backstory, uh, a chunk of it is that she came back and like they got media famous and she just basically became Juliet Lewis, like became a rock star. Like that she started a band, had like success for a run in a way that like provided her with enough money that she's finally run mm. dry. But like I hope Natalie spent like 10 to 15 years as a rad ass rock star <laughs> who was a total catastrophe, but like made bank being a musical mm. sensation or something. Nobody seems to greet her that way. They're not like Natalie, like when they see her on the street, but I would love it if that was true. <laughs> Um, but there's this amazing sense of a uh, commitment and loyalty to Natalie that implies she made the great extraordinary, like either mm-hmm. decision or sacrifice or act of heroism that saved them or protected them or allowed them all to live somehow. And I'm really excited to find out what that is. But I, I think it is, it plays interestingly into that trauma bond connection with all, like to watch Melanie know that Natalie is bad news, but also know that, like, you kind of have to stand up for Natalie. And when she pushes back against Ty, like, why are you still paying for mm. this stuff for her? Why do you enable her like this? And Ty being like, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Natalie. And then you're like, ooh, what's that mean? And that, and, and, and Shauna being like, yeah, well, good point. And just like, and, and the way that they all are, they hate Misty. They don't want to mm-hmm. be around Misty, but also they know that when, it, the season gets toward the end and it gets to be crunch time and things are getting more dire and there's more crisis and crime unfolding around them. We can't do it without Misty. Like the way we watch them have to retreat to these bonds that they even feel like they need to reject, but they know they have nothing else to rely on but those connections. It's an incredible marriage of obligation between all of them, but that is also in little moments laced with like, you know, the beautiful scene where, like, Ty and Shauna are reconnecting and just, like, you know, sitting in their her daughter's bed together sharing stories. It's so fucking moving. And the reason it can feel so moving is because everything is so detached and bleak around them so much that it's like, oh, but at one point they were just, like, 
girls who went to parties together and had sleepovers together and played soccer together. Like, that's also a part of their past. And you get reminders of the, that before everything happened, they were cute, rude teens living in Jersey in the 90s. And it's nice to remember that they were something before they were a, a tragedy and a true crime case. And let me ask you this, because there's... I think there's several ways to get into the, to go into the show. The way it's been marketed has been very intensely, I think, about the full core element of it because it's the most, yeah, it's yeah. the most visually appealing as is the 90s mm-hmm. teen girl element of it. Yeah. What works best for you for the show? Is it the mystery? Is it the adult drama? Is it the teen girl mm-hmm. drama? Is it the potential for a supernatural folk horror? Like, which Yellow Jackets mm-hmm. is your favorite Yellow Jackets flavor? I am totally agnostic on the folklore stuff. If it ends up being fully supernatural, I'll be like, okay, like, that's a valid genre. It's not something I'm looking forward to. It's something I will happily accept if that's what it turns out to be. If it turns out to be just, like, the collective paranoia of isolation and, like, psychosomatic awesome i accept that too i will be a little more interested in that i think inherently um if it is you know lottie lottie wasn't right and (laughs) like in fact that they just started like finding patterns enough to where they started projecting patterns and everything around them and created a pagan religion in response to fear and actually ended up doing horrible things in the name of a god that doesn't exist but hey we all agreed they do so that's the same thing right like i will if it's if it's more cult leader if it's more cult leader with Lottie, I will be more interested than if it's supernatural. You know, a theory, I, I'm not a, I, I don't do a lot of theorizing because I, what theorizing leads to is people getting attached to things that they have no business deciding that they're entitled to and then being disappointed when it doesn't happen in a completely baseless way. I'm hoping there's not like a second tribe, honestly. Like I've heard that one floated around that like, oh, there's, there's going to be another tribe in another part of the woods, like another collective. And I'm like, I, I hope not. Like, I don't want to divide. We're already dividing between two ensembles. I don't want to divide between Mm. a third. And I don't know if I want just like an external. I don't know if I want an external enemy in this show. I, to me, it is more interesting if the enemy remains internal. And if the enemy remains, the enemy remains the characters that are also your only Mm -hmm. allies. That to me is more interesting. And I think that counts as, as with, again, spoilers guys, how like the last thing we see in season one, like who the fuck is, who the fuck is Lottie Matthews? And knowing that, knowing that our, you know, I think our big bad from season one, the sort of Oz behind the curtain has been Lottie. Like, Lottie is potentially the one who was involved in Travis's death. Lottie was involved in Travis's accounts being vacated of their finances. Lottie is the one, you know, Lottie and her minions, that is, is the are the ones sending threatening messages to the women. That is still an internal threat because it's part of the gang. It's part of the Yellow Jackets. And it's Lottie. All I want to is Lottie. Has, did Lottie ever leave the woods or did Lottie go back? Or is Lottie just living in a fucking ashram somewhere that like she has, you know, her 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 followers now providing her with grape leaves and like fanning her with leaves. Um, with grapes and fanning her with leaves. So yeah, I am, it is, what I am most interested in are the interpersonal relationships of 
particularly the teenage girls, but it's the interpersonal relationships. It's not even like, I'm not even like looking forward most of all to like, ooh, I can't wait till this gets more scary or I can't wait till this gets more brutal. I'm not even necessarily looking forward to the cannibalism. I'll be happy when it gets there. But I just want to know who who wields the knife. I want to know who has each designation within the group when things start devolving more and more. Because clearly in like that last visual we get of Lottie like praying before the tree holding the heart of a mm-hmm. bear. Uh, we have Van and Misty behind her, like, kneeling in sort of prayer and devotion to whatever it is that Lottie sees out there in the woods. And I want to know where each of the girls starts falling in that hierarchy. That is what I am most interested in. And in the present timeline, I'm interested in, like, how much longer can Ty keep the secret? Her wife has found out about, like, that she in in a fugue state in her sleep fucking kills animals and climbs trees and eats dirt and claws at the ground. Like, I'm interested in how much longer the adults can keep their secrets from the people around them, but also from one another. Because Shauna's got some fucking secrets from the girls, and Missy, she may have hastily disposed of that body that has a very identifying back tattoo on the torso that she said wasn't going to be a problem. Uh, So... Yeah, I'm interested what happens in the present timeline when the girls start finding out that they're lying to each other. I think uh, you hinted at something which is the thing that I'm most interested in, and it's the micro-society that is created when there are no more Mm -hmm. social norms. When you have to start from scratch. And Jackie being a key piece of that. So let's get on to Jackie. And I I think this might be where this beautiful friendship ends. Uh, because I feel <laughs> from having read and heard and read your tweets about Jackie. Mm-hmm. Oh, believe me, I know I'm the minority on. We're gonna Jackie. we're gonna get to Jackie, but I want to start. I want to weave into Jackie first by talking about her and Shauna's friendship. And you called it a codependent friendship before, and I wanted to hear your thoughts and mm-hmm. kind of how. How does their dynamic works? Because if there is a relationship at the heart of the first season, at the very least, it is the friendship mm-hmm. between Jackie and Shauna. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before before we find Jeff and Shauna sort of in their very briefest of moments of being able to come mm-hmm. together in harmony for the first time, maybe since forever, um, right before their lives are upended again <laughs> by what happens at the very end of the of the finale. Uh, he comes in at the end and and they start like, oh, we can empathize with them and maybe this marriage can work and we're maybe we're happy for them or maybe we could be. The only sort of romance that really matters that we're both people, it's it's Jackie and Shauna. We meet Jackie having completely unsatisfying sex with her high school boyfriend, Jeff. (laughs) Shauna's future husband, Jeff. Well, they're not having sex. um, They're doing some very bad fingering. It's very, it's so, I was like, wow, this really, this really makes the case against me getting involved (laughs) in anything like this, doesn't it? This uh, this is bad news. Um, There, we see uh, Jeff crawling out of Jackie's window. uh, Presumably her parents don't know. And Jackie, you know, striding out of her house in the morning as Shauna is picking her up to go to school. And throughout the first episode, we see these, like, knowing exchanges of, like, affection and awareness between Shauna and Jackie, where we know, like, they're each other's other. Like, they're each other's partner in this. And it's, it's, they are, when I identified why I loved Jackie so much, it was because I realized that Jackie is a Jennifer check. 
and Shauna is needy Lesnicky. And the reason Jennifer's body is so effective is because you can graft Needy and Jennifer onto so many dynamics that you see throughout, uh, like, teen girl fiction. Uh, it was a perfect distillation of that, hyperbolically built out to be a horror film. Um, but, like, you, there is such a, like, an, Im- there's such an invisible string connection between Jackie and Shauna throughout the first episode that, like, a queer shipping started immediately. Like, oh, well, obviously they're in love with each other. Obviously... When we learn that Shauna's actually having secretly uh, sex with Jeff, obviously, like, a a lot of things I saw, like, lesbians on Twitter was like, well, clearly she's just having sex with Jeff because she wants to be with Jackie, so it's, like, the closest she can get. Just all the kinds of, like, Kaler truther head canoning to get yourself to the final result of a Jackie-Shauna relationship. Um, But what I, the reason why it is my favorite dynamic in the show, apart from the obvious ones, is because Jackie is such a perfect vessel for, like, norms, societal values, expectations being met and exceeded. Jackie is hot. She's a soccer team captain. They are champions. Teachers like her. She is smart. Like, Jackie's a total package, and she's kind of a bitch. And she's the meanest to Natalie because Natalie is the lowest below her on the social hierarchy because she is dirty and she is poor and Jackie is pretty and she is clean. And so we see like these foils for one another in those two characters, but you have sort of Shauna in the sort of the middle of everybody. Shauna's kind of like everyone's friend. Shauna's sort of the one probably everybody agrees is like the most easy to get along with. Everybody on the team would probably be friends with Shauna, even if they weren't friends with anybody else on the team after they, after they disbanded. Um, And what you have, though, is because Jackie's the mean girl, and not in, like, a Regina George way, but she's our local mean girl. She's our queen bee. The minute we arrive in the woods after the plane crash, not later, not eventually, the minute that plane goes down and girls get off, girls get off, survivors get off, Jackie is embarrassing herself from the go. Jackie is useless immediately. Every idea Jackie has is bad. Jackie, the seance is Jackie's idea. The dance is Jackie's idea. Social secretary popular girl Jackie is like trying to fall back on these things she knows work at home. That they work in the world where she is valuable and she is looked to as an authority. And every time she tries to lean on one of those familiar mechanisms or tools, it gets kicked out from under her and she fucks the group up again she makes bad situations worse she has no survival skills she's like it's like when you're having it's like when you're in kind of a weird patch with a friend and you feel like kind of everything you say just makes the situation worse even when you're trying to like make it better and you're just super in your head about what you're doing jackie is that person everything she is doing is not only making at times life for the group worse It's making her situation worse. She has no savvy. She has like no self-preservation instincts in the woods because what would it work as a self-preservation mechanism out here? I mean, back in high school, it's gone. She is like our avatar for everything that the girls are about to leave behind as they descend into a state of nature because Jackie is useless in the natural world and completely a product of what we have decided in society is good and valuable and should be promoted where that is all true actually shauna's the bigger bitch here shauna's the worst friend 
Shauna's the one fucking her best friend's boyfriend and pregnant and not telling her and lying to her about it over and over. And it is so amazing to watch when it finally all boils over how quickly the camp turns on Jackie because Jackie's not assimilating into Lottie's accumulating cult leader status. She's like, hey guys, this is fucked up. We're killing people. We're trying to kill people and we shouldn't do that. And everyone's like, yeah, well, you're pretty and mean. So you're wrong. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. Reality check. Her and Shauna get into the cataclysmic fight of fights about their friendship. They're airing each other out in front of a room full of girls. And every one of those girls has been waiting to take a shot. Jackie, their maybe whole lives, at least during the time that they've been on the soccer team together. They've been waiting to unhorse the queen. Even though, even though any thinking person looking at the facts on paper would be like, ooh, guys, Shauna is super wrong for this one. Shauna actually huge betrayal. Shauna did try and kill someone last night. Like, even though we know Shauna's crimes rise to a higher status of like, from misdemeanors were jumping up to felonies, because Jackie is so hateable as an archetype, the group still sides against her and alienates her out because she's going against, like, the tribe mentality. And honestly, that is exactly what would fucking happen. That is exactly what would happen. And be- we hate the mean girls so much. We hate the Regina George. We hate Leah Pipes' character in Sorority Row so much that even if, like, they're probably right, it's like, no, but we got to take them down a peg because they are the unlikable girl. They are the unlikable girl. They are so easy to project your bullshit onto and reject all of your perhaps enabling or complicit behavior in your relationship with them and be like, yeah, but they're the mean girl and I'm not, I'm not as pretty, even though everybody in the show is a stone cold hottie. Like, it is fascinating to watch the collective turn on Jackie, whose biggest crime is being benign and not helpful while watching a group of people rally around Shauna, who's the, the, the more recedent personality, but more sympathetic one. It doesn't actually matter that the facts would bear out that the more sympathetic one is actually the bigger asshole in the situation because the structure of what Jackie is and represents is something that deserves more to be brutally taken down. And I think that is incredibly incisive. Not only that, I would add. Tell me about why you hate Jackie. Oh, uh, I don't think it's just that. Everything you've just said, I really, really agree with, except for the fact that I don't think that people want to unhorse the queen because she's the mean girl and they've been waiting for their chance. They want to okay, unhorse okay. her because she serves no purpose in this new society. And she And that is factual. Yeah, she true. serves no purpose in the sense that she she cannot even share in their descent into tribalism. She cannot share in their collective uh shroom trip slash orgy (laughs) slash potential murder like even the concept of felony or misdemeanor has no place here they have all collectively understood wordlessly that some shit will go down that they never want to actually talk about or even acknowledge that happened in the future so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like we're in it together and some weird fucked up shit is going to happen and we're just going to have to deal with it later. Jackie refuses to get on board. So she cannot Mm -hmm. even be useful by being in the room and acknowledging that fucked up shit's going to happen. It's a fucked up situation. 
will just have to deal yeah. with it. She needs to be the protagonist and the morally superior protagonist in every single situation. And yes. that simply will not fly because the rules of their society, not just high school, but everything else, no longer apply. And because Jackie refuses to get with the program, I don't think it makes her a radical. It makes her yeah, dumb. No. Jackie has no dumb. survival Jackie's instinct dumb. whatsoever. Mm-hmm. She might be the mm-hmm. mean girl in, in their high school, but she actually fake tries to be a nice mean girl. She tries to rule with yes, kindness yes. as we see her at the party when yeah. they're, when, you know, when she sort of breaks up a fight by saying something really nice and complimentary about every single <laughs> girl, which is the <laughs> fakest shit I've seen in my life, but would absolutely work. <laughs> But also there's something that Shauna throws in her face that actually Shauna is the bigger bitch, but she knows that. She's not blinded to her own faults or to the betrayals that she's committing because Jackie is. Uh Jackie is actually the codependent one in their friendship because Jackie needs a sidekick. Not because Shauna is Mm -hmm. lesser than or less smart or Mm -hmm. less pretty or less interesting or less of a bitch. It's because she needs someone to look at her at all times. And she starts to unravel Mm -hmm. in the wilderness because no one gives a shit about Jackie anymore because it serves no purpose to have perfectly clear glowy skin and it serves no purpose to have perfectly (laughs) bouncy fluffy hair when there's a fucking bear walking towards you you know what serves a purpose yeah when we have to boil our tampons so we can yeah you know what serves a purpose knowing about uh different types of plants like misty does or knowing how to do a tourniquet because uh, like someone's limb has been turned off or knowing how to chop off a a grown man's leg that suddenly serves a purpose (laughs) so jackie is discombobulated because now the truth that was always there, but that was very hidden by the different accoutrement of high school royalty, is now yeah. in full sight that not even and not even she can actually ignore it. She cannot ignore the fact that she is now less than a sidekick. And she cannot ignore the fact that she now doesn't even have the ability to make a fucking fire, which is why she dies. And it is the dumbest death in the entire show i loved it because i could see it coming i loved it that she would rather die in the cold that she would assume that she would be impervious to it because she's jackie yeah and she yeah she's jackie bitch and she isn't she's so fucking dumb and unself-aware that she does not realize that she should probably not go to sleep out in the wilderness, in the middle of the forest, without ha- being able to light a fire to heat herself, just out of spite, just <laughs> to not be, just to not ask for help, because how dare they ask that Queen Jackie asks for help and reduces herself to being a human being? Jackie cannot fathom not being the protagonist, and that literally yeah. kills her. <laughs> and I, I was talking to a friend about this, and they were saying that, like, you know, because Shauna is very just like adult Shauna is very like just sort of like shrug, kind of like a ghost gliding through life until the moment she starts like killing bunnies in the garden and, and field dressing them to make stew out of them. Um, my friend pointed out that she was like, yeah, and like no wonder Shauna is conflict avoidant as an adult. The first time she ever stood up to herself for her best friend, her best friend fucking died. <laughs> The one time she was like, I'm asserting myself, that person died and they never reconciled and there was never closure. It's like, well, I should probably literally never do that again because 
people die. I one of my fi- one of I, just the absolute best moments in this whole this whole season is when they're it's doom coming. They're all high. Misty spiked the fucking suit. I will say, I'm not going to defend Misty much because, well, I will because I fucking love Misty. She's a wonderful little serial killer. I want a whole Misty series entirely just about her wilderness years. (laughs) Um, But she, she actually doesn't spike it. She doesn't spike it. Like, it was, it's a pure accident. It's It's an an accident. It's the, yeah, it's the accidental, oh, you have mushrooms. And just her being like, yeah. And then letting someone else cook them into the soup. Um, she just meant to spike Coach Ben's. I know. Misty, Misty's and- particular brand, Misty's sexuality and like, ve- essentially like she is a sexual predator, which I find. Yes, Misty is a sex predator. A very interesting development for her, especially because the physicality of Misty, both as a teenager and then Christy, uh, played by Christina Vici, is a very tiny, very petite woman with giant glasses yep. who is like on the surface the most inoffensive possible package yeah. this woman this character could come in to come in and it's like oh no yeah misty will literally roofie you do weird shit to your body and then like probably dismember you she will touch you she will touch your body while you are asleep she will like <laughs> my my what i i absolutely love the moment in the show and the doom coming it's all coming it's all fucked uh, Jackie has just had sex with Travis. <laughs> She's like, I'm gonna hate fuck this guy. And it's happened. And she goes downstairs and ends up in the middle of a drug orgy and is like, what the fuck is going on? She's like the only, her and Natalie are like the only not high people in the entire woods. And Lottie, played by Courtney Eaton, who is a clean six feet tall, in real life like comes charging up to jackie like they're having a confrontation and you've got and ella purnell is small in a cast of petite people ella purnell is small compared to the rest and lottie just courtney eaton towering over looks at her and says don't you get it you don't matter anymore and shoves her into a closet i screamed anna i was i was like this is the violence i came here for (laughs) like somebody might get their head cut off tonight they think travis is a stag running through the woods their eyes are blacked out they're going nuts this is the violence that i watch yellow jackets for (laughs) i released the uncut orgy scene i think more should happen that night that we we were not privy to (laughs) Had had to had to have happened my god Everybody just wakes up on the ground. Nothing happened between those two moments. Okay. God, imagine imagine Natalie getting back some morning and being like, hey, guys, what did I miss? Well, let us catch you up. Jackie's dead. We've organized a pagan religion. And you're in or you're out. Like, Do you know what? It's productive. Oh, okay. Guess I better it's make a choice. It's a very productive use of time. I'll say this. <laughs> Something that Jackie was never was never productive. What did, what, how were, how did you, how did, what did you do when Jackie was dead, dead? Well. What was, when, like, show, and, and, like, all the, all the kudos in the world to Sophie Elise, who is giving an incredible mm. performance as young Shauna. And as it gets more and more intense, like, I, she's so mild through so much of it, and then really rises, I think, to those occasions when the character has to just, like, unleash. I really expected Jackie to be eaten. 
that was the thing that I expected okay, to be the big okay. reveal. Like the fact that she was so the, that she had to serve a purpose in some way for this new pagan yeah, society. Yeah. And because she was so yeah. useless in every other sense that the only the yes, only totally. thing she could actually do was be consumed. Uh she can't even do that. Well she can't even do that. We don't know what happens. We don't know what happens the day after. Well, yes, that was my second thought. But actually, when I went down a little internet rabbit hole after I finished the series, uh, there is a fan theory, which I'm really intrigued by, that says that if there mm. is a supernatural element, even a light touch one, mm-hmm. that Jackie didn't actually die despite being literally 50 different shades of blue uh, and dead in the yeah, snow. Yeah. That she su- somehow, su- yeah, somehow she survives because, and this is what they use as evidence, in the scene, the yes, in the notebook, in the journal, the journal, all the movies and the things that she listed were after the the year were had come out after the year that they had crashed. So it yeah. it implies very very lightly that Jackie did survive, did come back, but then is no longer. We haven't met her yet, or is no longer part of the picture, or is dead for another reason. For mm-hmm. another reason, right? For another reason. I'm into that. Because I would, because you know what? I, because I, w- I want Jackie. I want Jackie back. So I'm frankly into I that. I want as Jackie well. back. I want just enough of Jackie back because I think the actual really interesting character arc for a, a, a mean girl is to come back into a world where she doesn't matter. Yeah. Where outside yeah. of the wilderness, outside of the extreme situations, she's not the heroine. She's not the, um, the success story of the survival story that they all mm-hmm. endured, she's actually the fucking flop. It is thanks to other people that she's... <laughs> Jackie's flop era! She survived only because of other people's savvy, and everybody knows, uh-huh. everybody sees who she is, and she's no longer hot shit. What does somebody who's, as Shauna says to her in that big confrontation blowout, somebody who's always gotten exactly what she wanted without trying... What happens when mm-hmm. you no longer get the shit that you always wanted? When nobody really looks yeah. at you with the, as you've referenced it, the pretty privilege and the hot girl privilege. Yeah. When those no longer yeah. are part of who you are and how you walk through the world, what happens then? What happens to a Jackie after she comes back and nobody gives a shit? I, and that is, it is, it is one of the, it is something that I find so satisfying about this show is how like, it is, I think it is, it does, it does wonderfully effective work of being like, hey, yeah, all those things that like you're judging yourself against and that people are judging you for and like the things that like TikTok makes you feel shitty about, you know, if you're a teen, teen in high school now, in a, in a mission critical situation, none of that shit will save you. Like all of those things that people bullied you for or you got in your head for or you were self-conscious about or you had a complex about, like when the rubber met the road. None of that. If you had achieved every marker of what you were told was success at like a teen girl moment in your life, if you had gotten every one of those things and had them dialed in perfectly, you would still be fucking useless in a Mad Max situation. And like, it's like a hyperbolic extension of that kind of consideration, but it's sort of just like a, yeah, like how quickly, again, it's not even like by the midpoint of the season, people start being disillusioned by Jackie. Moment one. When we see she is left Van for dead in the plane, 
Van knows she left her for dead and is just staring at her. And Shauna knows she left her for dead too. Shauna's also carrying her boyfriend's baby and she's real self-conscious about that. But to watch immediately Jackie be set back on her heels and from the minute they hit the ground in the wilderness, she never recovers. There's never a bounce back. There's never a moment where the camp takes her side really. I think it's amazing how quickly we watch people be willing to and um, able to relinquish those connections to norms as soon as it doesn't suit them anymore. And I think that's actually something that feels pretty mm. real. Hmm. I think people would divest from that quite rapidly when they realize there wasn't a consequence to not upholding those structures anymore. I mean, and just look at how fucked up things have gotten here in the States when, like, as soon as people were given permission from someone on high to be virulently racist outwardly, like, in the form of a president, like, it, it became a mainstreaming of ethno-nationalism for one half of an entire country, sort of like political parties, mainstream platforming alignment. And all it took was one word of permission from a president. Like it took one guy coming to office and then we're like, Oh, thank God we don't have to fucking pretend anymore. As soon as these girls hit the woods, it's like, well, shit, like it's all out the window now. And you know, now I can push back against you without teachers to tell me not to. And I love it when we start seeing Scott lose his authority too. Those are some really great moments. But what I found, what I found actually, very interesting and i think it's sort of just planted just enough for it to be really truly explored in the second series is that mm -hmm. as soon as they land and all the rules are thrown out the window they start immediately building new rules they start building yes. new hierarchies yes. new queen bees mm -hmm. new mm -hmm. essentially kind of what matters in this new society and it is immediate mm -hmm. It is immediate. Yep. And that's what's interesting is the creation, not a collective. It, I don't think it's collective. It's almost instinctual. Uh, it's the mm -hmm. creation yeah. of a new set of rules. And I think Jackie is the only one who, because she's just, just a fucking flop, just yeah. refuses <laughs> to understand that the old rules no longer apply and she needs to be able to read and influence the creation of a new structure, and she doesn't. She doesn't mm -hmm. because she's busy fucking she doesn't. Uh, putting on mascara and creating, <laughs> like, basically organizing a fake prom, which, to be fair, is it's a great, it's a great event, to be honest. Yeah, that was, the prom was, a, the prom could have been a great idea. The, let's do a seance, let's do something that scares people in the middle of woods, and we are totally Yeah, Jackie, to Jackie's that a sociopath. Jackie's a stone-cold sociopath. Jackie. She is, you know who she reminds me of? Jackie's a She idiot. reminds me of uh, Angelina Jolie's character in Girl Interrupted. Girl Interrupted? <laughs> I, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I... I love, I love how, I think one of the best tricks of this show is how it kind of makes you, it kind of tricks you into thinking by the end of it that you've watched a lot more Carnage than you've yes, actually seen. Absolutely. Like, by the end of it, you're like, wow, have 30 people died in this series? And it's like, no. Like, we lost the people on the plane, yes. But like, it's, it, in, as far as in the child timeline, like, it's, it's Laura Lee and it's Jackie and that's it. We almost mm. lost Van to mm. the wolf attack, but we didn't. But, like, we only lose two. And I think it meets out its deaths so well. When there's the cold mm. kill. It meets out its deaths so well. And they're both, ex it, it, particularly after the cold open one, they're both extremely significant. I love how this show, like, again, in the showing don't tell aspect. Like, when we lose Jackie, 
it feels like we are losing the girls' most, the girls' last remaining tether to social hierarchies that leaves a complete power. Like, she's had, she's exercised no power in the woods, but I think her dying leaves a complete vacuum for Lottie to fill. Because at the very least, the most reasonable thing Jackie does in the entire season is be like, you guys tried to fucking kill someone last night. Like, you can't be doing, like, she's telling people, don't murder people. You're going out of your minds. You guys, like, she's trying to at least be like, hey, guys, let's not be fucking killers out here, which is a pretty reasonable thing to say. But with her gone, leaves a total vacuum for Lottie to fill. And when Laura Lee dies, there's that brief period of time where Lottie starts having her visions and isn't quite sure what to do with them and is still feeling a little insecure about them and goes to Laura Lee for counsel. And Laura Lee, the extremely Christian girl, is like this point of connection to a a Christian God that we know and recognize in a monotheistic structure, the world's organized around, you know, the Christian God, this other bullshit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Laura Lee is that. And Lottie is going to her for counsel and you're thinking, and like, and I was like, oh, is like, is Laura Lee going to be the path to power? Because like Lottie's going to be her visionary and she's going to be like the voice of God kind of thing. But basically one episode after that bond starts to forge, Laura Lee blows up in a fucking plane. Like Jesus take the wheel. Laura Lee exploded over a lake. And the one who reacts most harshly in that moment is Lottie. Like, that was kind of the one thing she was sort of orienting around. She's been a little scared of her visions and her mind going out of her control a little bit. Mm-hmm. Was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to Laura Lee about this. She's my spiritual guide. Well, spiritual guide's gone. So we lose Christianity and God. Then we, like, as, as Coach Ben becomes more and more irrelevant, we're losing, like, authority figures. We're losing the adults in the room. He's physically unable and he has no power over these girls. And that moment when Laura Lee snaps at him, when he's like, no, you can't fly that plane. And she was like, and how are you going to stop me? It's like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. No one cares about Coach Ben anymore. So we lose God. We kill God in Laura Lee. We sideline the grownups in Coach Ben. And then we kill society by Jackie dying. And then what are we left with? Fucking chaos. And that has to organize around something. And that something appears to be the Antler Queen. And the idea of teen girls as representatives for the tenants of functioning industrialized society, of course they are. Of course they are. Of course teen girls are God, society, and Christianity. Why not? I mean, that's that's how I would like the season to end. Thank you very much. Um, but <laughs> that is how you end a teen horror. It is season. true. That's how you end it. But I do, I do want to ask you a question, which you've sort of, you've already kind of, um, thrown a couple of ideas and expectations around as we've spoken. But I want to ask you, what do you mm-hmm. expect from the second season? A thing I'm really curious to see how they tackle is the mm-hmm. pregnancy. Because I know there's been a lot of the speculation around, like, mm-hmm. the baby. Like, are they going to eat the baby? Is, like, the only way I want the baby to enter the picture is if we can stretch it way into the future. Baby stayed with Lottie. Lottie raised baby as her own and taught baby that the uh, that her true mom was, like, an enemy of the, the cause and the cult. I only want baby... 
if Baby is going to be, like, the enforcing arm of Lottie's will. <laughs> That's the only way that Baby interests me. Otherwise, I am very curious I have to seen see- in, in a chat show clip that I watched of Christina Ricci on the Jimmy Fallon show, I think, uh... Her, okay. I could. I tried to watch that interview literally today. I cannot watch. Yeah, he, it's people. bad. Uh, no, it's the anguish. only thing that's interesting is Christina Ricci is disproving fan theories in this, and she categorically says, mm. "No, we do not eat the baby." Okay, and I, I didn't think, I didn't think baby cannibalism was. I didn't think we were gonna go. Uh, snow post, snow piercer. But I actually think your your version of it is so much more interesting. I, I I just I would I would love that as just like a total gonzo kind of twist. But if not, I kind of would like to see I would be so curious to see how these writers specifically considering like the deftness that they've shown so far, how they would confront maybe like, is Shauna gonna miscarry? Like, does Shauna miscarry this child? Does Shauna have this child and does it die of exposure or an animal attack? Some harrowing natural circumstance that emphasizes the human powerlessness amidst the awesome spectacle of nature and because how does that fuck shauna up like what does that then tell us about the person shauna became with how she had to deal with losing this baby somehow and she kept these journals like jeff must have known that she was pregnant at some point and like I'm very curious to see how what I I think will be the loss of this child affects Shauna and how that will tell us like, oh, how that will fit into place with what we know about adult Shauna and how we will see that push her in the wilderness timeline to like, I don't know, maybe run further into the grips of Lottie. Like, what do you do when the most catastrophic loss two the two most catastrophic losses you could like possibly experience in your life ever and or your life at that point by losing your best friend losing kind of in many ways the love of your life to that point and then losing a child as a child yourself that is something i'm really curious about and i you know it's interesting speculating about the show because it's like i have all these things like oh here like i want to see the thing that natalie did that saved everybody but it's also like but i also don't think that they have this i think they have it like mapped out as like a four or yeah, five, five season show in their heads so like i don't so, like, I don't expect to necessarily find that out for a while. So, like, I want to know that answer, but I'm not going to be unhappy if I don't know it in season two. Um, and, of course, we're all wondering, because the casting is so fucking phenomenal in the show, who is Lottie Matthews? Who would you like to like, be cast as Lottie Matthews? My favorite physical one-to-one so far has actually been, she's a little short, but Sean is awesome on. Mm. I have really enjoyed the, uh, in one of the tweet threads I've seen, uh, Sean and Sasamon as, as a Lottie, as an adult Lottie. And that one has really stuck. You know what? Me. As much as I love Sean and Sasamon and you have no idea how much I love her, did I, I s- take a picture of her in Laws of Attraction, in, in Rules of Attraction <laughs> to a hairstylist and say, I would like this, please? <laughs> oh, and that's and a tough one yeah, for anyone to it, pull it, off. It, wow. No. <laughs> Would she, would she, would I love her to play like 2006 Shannon saw someone play me in a movie of my life that will never happen? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. she, I can she see that, honestly. That makes Stop sense it. to me. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. The eyes. I, the eyes. I don't think she's a very good actress. I don't think she, I, I don't think I'm she pull off a lot. I'm not disputing I that. I don't think she has the, she's I'm, very beautiful and like, 
Uh, mm-hmm. very interesting even in her sort of woodenness like I still want to keep watching her yes yes but I don't think she has the magnetic and intense charisma that Lottie an adult Lottie needs she does need to be yeah. a cult leader she does need to be a cult leader what do you think who have you been imagination casting as Lottie fuck I'm really blanking I now know. I'm really blanking I mean, <laughs> I'm I I just I just searched Lottie casting yellow jackets and just like it's also people also search for and this would it would look nothing like her, but they were in Mad Max together. And just the zag of seeing her like the idea of just putting dyeing her hair black and putting Abby Lee in as a Oh adult my Lottie, god. Not the worst idea anyone's Do you ever know what given. I have I I've <laughs> Because she would be a fucking charismatic ass cult I've got three suggestions. Okay. Uh, Two of them are from The Leftovers. Uh, Amy Brenneman. I think think something older, but, you know, like, just intense, powerful presence. Uh, Yeah, yeah. so powerful. Yeah, I I would follow a cult that Amy Brenneman was was leading. Uh, Carrie Coon. Just unbelievable actress. That's yep. a cult leader right there. That's a cult leader right there. Yeah. And oh my god, who was the third? We kind of I've seen someone uh fan cast Julia Stiles as Van, as an adult Van, uh-huh. which I think I've, is I've seen that. So on point. That would be a that would be a really be good van. That would because like we don't I, I'm so and that's another thing of like we have yet to find out who all made yeah. it. Like we don't know if they was oh, alive. We don't following, know. Following following the now and then nineties like um, actresses mm-hmm. coming into this role, Demi Moore. Oh man, that would be. Pr- I mean, that would be special. <laughs> that would be something else. Demi Moore has not done a good that, villain that yet. Would... I want her to do a good villain. Um, excuse me, Charlie's Angels. Full okay. Throttle. Okay. <laughs> Come on now. I think she. I that, don't think of her as a villain. A- Cultural reset. That was a vibe shift in the 2000s when Demi Moore I refuse to acknowledge coming out yeah, of that water. Yeah, that is true. With her like eight abs in that movie, and then the the mink in front of the fire holding the giant gun. Oh, I don't think God. she was a villain. I think she was a disgruntled former employee. <laughs> yes, that's yes, that's fair. It's a kind of a good yeah, for her exactly. Performance. It's a bit of a good. Yeah, for and her. she hasn't done a lot except for audio erotica in a while so i think it would be it would be a big moment for her to come back to the screen i mean it would be a moment it would would be a a vibe shift (laughs) that would be a vibe shift and now i'm just gonna fantasize about it being because that's she's a she's a good six one wow self and yeah abby lee's six one flat-footed and uh her and courtney eaton are like eye to eye you mm-hmm. see them in photos of each other and that was when i realized that courtney eaton is mm-hmm. very tall and i was like it's a it's an even better performance than i thought it was um but yeah like god who the fuck is lottie matthews oh that is one of the best episodes that's one of the best season finales i feel oh like god and let's see what are some of the fantasies though oh we always yeah okay shannon sossaman maggie q Tia Carrera? What? Olivia? No, not Olivia Munn. No. Absolutely. I'm vetoing this. Not. It should not happen. No. And Tia Carrera, I don't... Tia Carrera, no. No. She's That's too warm. Like, She's got a warm no. energy about her. 
Yeah, that's not that's not quite right. I'm not. I don't. I can't do Tia Carrere. And uh, Marianna Smith. She's also she's also like fully in yeah. her fifties. Hmm. No, these are bad ideas. Yeah. <laughs> I think our ideas are better. <laughs> these these are bad ideas. Huh. Anyway, so I w- I will not yeah, be going it- down a Reddit uh a Reddit <laughs> a Reddit page of fan casting it, but let's see. Someone someone did I'm now looking at the Vulture fan casting. Someone has suggested Lauren Ambrose for Van, which I think that's, is also a tasteful really choice. I think it's a very tasteful mm-hmm. choice. Um Wilder Valderemma's adult hobby, spare <laughs> me, please. Do you care about us or not? Oh my goodness, no. Adult Jackie, in the event that there was an adult Jackie, their suggestion was Sarah Michelle Gellar. Oh, that is great. That's great. I actually love that. That would be fantastic. Especially if she was kind of like cracked. That would be great. Yeah. And I feel like, I gotta feel like too, that it's kind of like the way the first season jumped off and the rest of the ensemble that's in it. I kind of feel like you have a good shot with Mm -hmm. whoever you go out to. Like, hey, you want to be in Yellow Jacket season two? It'd be like, yeah. Like, <laughs> that's not a, that's not a like, oh, mm, I'm not going to take that lunch. Like, you're going to at the very least take that fucking lunch. So hopefully we'll be back doing this for Yellow Jacket season two. But. I mean, I hope so. But before we wrap up, Jordan, is there anything about the first season of the show or about teen girl horror in general that you wanted to say that you haven't had a chance to say over the past 90 or so minutes that we've been recording? <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, it's not quite teens, but I do really love Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. And I think that movie really does get at something, like we were saying earlier, like the the cruelty of horror that, uh, around the, like, the 2000s very much so. And I think a oh, lot I'm going to cover Bodies, like, Bodies, Bodies, yeah. so we can talk about it when it's going to be out in the UK in September. Yeah, okay, good. And and I just, I, I think that, I think that that, what that movie captures in spirit is and it's 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 a sort of satirical tone and it's it's over the top but like i think it captures a sort of depth of of the spectrum of cruelty of young women that i think um again where it can just be played for archetypes and sort of played for gags and laughs i i think that what we see in yellow jackets is a really capable and mature demonstration of the evolution of teen horror up to the point where we are now. I think it takes the the vernacular that has been developed by this subgenre over time, over decades. And it puts it into a place where like, and here's how we can do it in a smart way, in a compassionate way, in a brutal way, in a fun way, in an interesting and challenging way, while also still giving you like those, like you don't matter anymore. And like a teen girl bitch fight, like where someone throws somebody else out of a house. I think it shows off how much we've learned over the course of doing this genre and watching like now like Gen Xers and millennials who've been able to refine it um, from a more unruly time that like the sorts of movies that we were exposed to growing up. Uh, And I put in the sensitivity and new kind of fearlessness and, and boldness and intersectionality into storytelling that we are getting better at now that simply wasn't on offer when those mean bitch movies felt like they were really sort of clicking on all on all cylinders previously so i really like that about it i really like it as a demonstration of like hey you can do this and it can be every bit as fun and like animal brain and like adrenaline pumping 
as you want it to be and it can also be nominated for emmys because it's one of the best and smartest fucking shows on television that cares about the women in the cast and these female characters and honors them for the complicated nature of all of their relationships with one another and i i really that's a good report to me on the state of teen horror is if we have come to a place where yellow jackets is possible and where yellow jackets can foreshadow how much more we can do in the future beautiful could have never said it better myself <laughs> i hope that's a good bow on it is i mean at this point in the season at the end of the season i'm like fuck these kids just kill all of them kill all of them yeah you're like i'm delirious i am delirious <sighs> hate teenagers hate all of them just murder all of them i might just like start might just <laughs> write a teen horror movie of my own where it's just like a 30 something millennial just killing all the kids being like fuck you all of you <laughs> Just, just bloodbath. <laughs> I wonder if I, I don't know if uh, I don't know if Sophie Thatcher's uh, twin sister acts, but she does have a twin sister, uh, seemingly identical. If there's a way to incorporate two two Natalies in the wilderness setting, just for I don't know some sort of supernatural thing, sure. sure. Give me and FYI, Sophie Thatcher's middle name is Bathsheba. Everybody, so that's I think just an important detail <laughs> that we should shout out. I think she's living that real life as like, I think she's like a weird artist and I support her. That's a, a great factoid. I hope they work it into the show in some way. Uh, yeah. Sophie Bathsheba Thatcher. Hell, if that isn't like a, a conjuring part six movie villain, which name? I don't know what is. <laughs> isn't it? I mean, isn't it? I do. I do. I think my last thing has to be, I just have to give it to Juliette Lewis is such a specific, mm. she is a genre unto herself at this point. There is a kind of chaos within Juliette Lewis that is so unique to her. And yet, it feels like Sophie Thatcher has bottled a sort of young baby form of that to bring as a logical antecedent to what Juliette Lewis mm. is going to do as the future version of that character that is so fucking impressive. Like, wow <laughs> wow G- amazing work sophie thatcher amazing so jordan for anyone who isn't yet following you online where can people find or listen to more of your work uh you can find me on so many podcasts the feeling scene podcast is every week and that is on maximum fun and i'm talking to guests about characters from film and sometimes tv that make them feel represented on screen um Recent episodes include W. Kamau Bell. Uh, me and him had a lot of fun. Uh, Kristen Meinzer, podcasting impresario, uh, talking about Anne of Green Gables. If you see yourself in Anne with an E, check that episode out. Uh, Austerian podcast coming back soon, talking about horror movies with the filmmaker Sam Wyman that happened around the turn of the millennium, the disaster pod, uh, weekly talking about disaster movies, and then the Botcast. There's the whole movie podcast Botcast season that wrapped a couple months ago, and you should just go check out all the episodes of that, especially the the double episode about Ex Machina, which is a wonderful time, and my co-host Margot at truly the zenith of her form. Thank you, as always, Jordan. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Anna. 